previously on the Metal Podcast. You see a lot of people pining for the 50s now because that was when people really were happy. Most homeless people are drug addicts or they're crazy. Or hippies. Well, I would say hippies are drug addicts and crazy. There's a lot of, uh, oh, he suicided himself, or uh, there's another murder or suicide. Oh, like David Crosby's girlfriend, who was also (laughs) the son, or sorry, that was the daughter of a military leader? Gail Zappa, who is known formally as Adelaide Slotman. Uh, Gail hails from a long line of naval officers. Her father spent his life working on classified nuclear weapons research for the Navy. Fang Zappa's wife knew Jim Morrison in kindergarten, so it's the same people. Also, the Zappa children watched porn with their parents and were encouraged in their own sexuality as soon as they reached puberty. And I stand by that metal in the 80s was its own kind of op, because what it did was it normalized satanic imagery. And Hmm. and while it didn't turn the country satanic, but it normalized an aversion to Christianity. Yeah, our news is that, hey, Meg the Stallion's on Instagram now. Like, that's that's page one news. (laughs) We had a society, and then these people came along, these children of military figures, and they told everyone, oh, by the way, your society sucks. There's so much information out there that the people in power know you're not going to look for because you're going to be looking at your TikTok. You're going to be watching nurses dancing. You're going to be looking at the newest tweet from Elon Musk to, to be outraged at. You're going to be oh, at this, that, or whatever. You're going to be at each other's throats over stupid things. And you're not going to realize that they've long since pulled the rug out from underneath you. They could tell you the truth about everything and you won't care because you've been distracted by everything. There, that, that's the purpose of a lot of this media stuff is it's Mm -hmm. all a distraction. It confuses you. The music was a distraction to make you forget that the point was never the music. The point was the music was the platform that they gave to elevate these rock stars into a status where they had the biggest megaphone and they just told a generation what to think. And this generation was perfectly brainwashed into allowing people in power to steal everything, not from them, but from their children. And now for part two. And welcome to another edition of the Metal Podcast. And this is part two in the Laurel Canyon deep dive. And this is one of those things that the deeper you go, the harder it is to climb out. Like this is, I guess, why they call it a rabbit hole because, you know, you see a little hole and you go down and then there's a whole network just, just, uh, waiting for you to just keep falling to the end. And this is something that I, I really was trying to do like maybe three parts, who knows how many we'll end up doing, but, uh, three or four there and and a lot of it is just because we we can't just have every episode of the metal podcast just be about Laurel Canyon because we could probably do that but at a at another at a certain point we we need to get back to our regularly scheduled content which is um sucking up to megadeth and pointing out <laughs> all the murderers in the rap industry you know our our bread and butter there Yes, we gotta stay on point, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, our we we have our uh, our priorities, but we wanted to do something special, and you know, it's it's just about the Halloween season, so 
There's nothing spookier than the CIA using music to to trick young people into doing drugs. So DJ, uh, why don't why don't you why don't you take the lead this week? Well, speaking of the spooky season, we do we do have uh, a few options today to uh, to kind of go over. But we got the Laurel Canyon Death List. We can uh, kind of introduce a little bit of some uh, spooky characters, so to speak. But you know, I really wanted to kind of go and see where this not only like where it really started, but who really promoted this stuff and how it relates today. So. And like you said, the deeper you dive into this, you're just you just keep on chasing because the next thing you get into is more and more important. But I kind of was curious. What, well, it's um, like a it's like a mathematical line. There there <laughs> seems to be no end. No, not at all. Like we literally could do a whole series on on John Phillips. I think, let alone the Laurel Canyon, uh, a deep dive with these people. You know, but. Obviously, you've heard of the record companies Atlantic and Columbia Records, right? Well, of course. Doesn't Columbia Records didn't didn't they do? Um... Oh no, I was thinking uh, something else. Never mind. Yeah, two major labels still around today. Go on. If I had to well, guess, hold on. Uh, is Columbia Records a subsidiary of Sony? I, I, you know what, I, like, I'm just trying to keep it basic here. It probably okay, is, okay, but I okay. couldn't, I just tried to stay on, stay on this one. All right, all right, you stay there. So, so I think we've, we, have we mentioned Buffalo Springfield yet with their, they, they coined the biggest protest song of the era. Um, no, I don't think we have. Is, and is that the, the song that's in every movie that features Vietnam? Yes. Okay. The, uh, something happened in here. That one? Yeah, that Oh, one. and oh, by the way, Columbia Records is an American record label owned by Sony Music Entertainment. Well, there you go. Do you, <laughs> rabbit hole averted. Thank you for that, yep. AC. There you go. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, cool. back to back to Dusty Springfield. Yeah, Dusty Springfield. Uh they signed with Atlantic Records, um, which started in nineteen forty seven by a man named Ahmet Ertegun and dentist-slash-investor Herb Abramson. And now, the reason why I bring this up is because if you didn't listen to the first episode, you need to go back because and, all these uh, people are connected to the military-industrial complex. Yeah, and also, uh, that was a joke when he said Dusty Springfield. We are talking <laughs> about, of course, Buffalo Springfield. <laughs> so, these guys, born in Istanbul, Turkey in 1923, the year the Turk Republic was established, Ahmet was... Both the son. Oh, hold and on. Son. Who who okay. are you talking about? You skipped. I'm you talking skipped about because okay, Buffalo uh, Springfield is a band, not a person. They're a band. I'm talking about Atlantic Records. Who okay, you're talking about Atlantic Records. Oh. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So they're started by two guys, Am- Ahmet Ertegun and Herb Abramson. Uh, okay. They, hmm. they were born in Istanbul, and this is Atlantic Records. <laughs> born in Istanbul. Or Istanbul, Istanbul, Turkey, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nineteen twenty-three, uh, the year the Turk Republic was established. Ahmet was both the son and the grandson of career diplomats slash civil servants. His father had been named the first Turkish representative to the League of Nations in nineteen twenty-five. <laughs> okay, sounds like a comic thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, in the League of Nations nineteen twenty-five, and thereafter served as the Turk Republic's ambassador to Switzerland. France and England in 1935. 
And he was named the first Turkish ambassador to the United States, and he promptly relocated the family to Washington, D.C. Oh, interesting. D.C., a lot, a lot of happening yeah. there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so from about the age of 12, Ahmet grew up along D.C.'s Embassy Row, attending elite private schools with the sons and daughters of senators, congressmen, and intelligence operatives. Oh! This is the guy that started... <laughs> Atlantic <laughs> Records, eh? Yeah, it's, okay, so I, I also, I, I want to get into to this real quick, just, okay. just a complete side note. Now, all these people, they're all of a military background. Now, now you, you could make the argument like, oh, well, you know, back then, you know, people had more pride in their nation, you know, they, they, they felt you know, a more, uh, they felt more like a, a necessity of, of duty. So just some more people had military parents, you know, because of, because of that. But don't you, don't you think that like people that have the military background, they would want their children to be, to have a more disciplined life than just kind of, uh, slutting it up and drugging it up and you just think just, being right, rock stars right. yeah yeah <laughs> yes too. or or being like a, a music mogul like th- mm-hmm. think about this like yeah I, I want i want you to do this and, and everyone listening and especially you dj Uh-oh. I, I want you to like the next time you talk to your mom or your dad just say I think I'm going to start a record label. Like look them dead in the face. Like you've never <laughs> been more serious and see what their reaction is. I've already put them through enough. Well, well, no, no. And I'm, I'm serious. Do this because like, you know, eventually like, like they're either, they're going to have the same reaction as that guy from, um, from, uh, Goodfellas. Like when he realizes that, um, that Joe Pesci isn't funny and, and he's just doing a thing. Or like, they're going to say, why? Like, you know, there's no money in that. Like, why would you want to do that? Like what may, like they're going to, they're going to be, yeah, they're going to be really confused. Like why? Like there's nothing. And now this guy, he's like the, the children of, of ambassadors uh, that were on the league of nations. Like, yeah, I'm going to sell records. Yeah. I'm going to not just sell records. I'm going to find musical talent in America. And, and we're going to make, we're going to sell records. And they happen to be all literally like on the same block. That how, too. How well, I, I mean, well, that, that's, that ended up being the case, but I'm just saying just, just in, in the beginning, cause right. I would, I would bet any of you that say, Hey, Hey mom, dad, you know, I'm going to start a record label. I would bet back then it would probably I'm be dropping. A, and I'm dropping everything to do it. Like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> Oh, I, that's going to be a harder sell. I th- okay. don't, don't, don't do it. Just say oh, like, okay. Yeah. Like <laughs> in addition. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. Just, just do that. But I would guess back then the, the reaction would be, um, either more hostile or more confused. Like th- there's like, ah, oh, there's no money in it because the the thing is with all those Laurel Canyon hippie bands, mm-hmm. they increased record sales by like ten to a hundred times. You know what? I I got so mad before. Don't you know? Don't look up 
certain things before an episode because I got really upset because I had I came across that number. There was a number like before the 1960s, what late record labels were were bringing in, like how much money revenue it was like in the tens of millions or something like that. Pretty pretty low. And after the 60s, it was in like the hundreds of millions, maybe like maybe even in the billions. But I got yeah, it was, it was ten because, to a hundred times. It, but it Atlantic was, yeah. and Columbia Records were the first two that started this because uh they signed uh columbia signed the birds and they recorded the first album released it folk rock revolution and then um buffalo springfield was signed to atlantic so you had these two big players well my but my right but my my point is that this isn't like you're doing it in the 80s like look look at how popular the music was in the 60s look at how popular disco was in the seventies and look at rock. Like there is, there is a market for music. Music is on the rise. Daddy. O. Mm. like I'm going to okay. start a label and I'm going to find, I'm going to find the next Beatles. So this was even, this was before the Beatles. This was, this was before the birds and Buffalo Springfield even. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this was like th- this guy, this Turkish immigrant <laughs> who, who, who spent his childhood in uh, DC, mm-hmm. uh, but he loved music because that—that's what pulled him into the black district, yeah. where he saw yeah. all these all these these black artists, and that's where that's where he fell in love with music. So he decided to start a record label. Mm-hmm. It's how how all these these pieces all fit so conveniently, oh, yeah. right? But go on, yeah. go on. I just wanted to say like the no, that idea that, yeah, the idea that someone would say like, Hey mom and dad ambassadors, important, uh, government officials, I'm going to start a record label in a time when music is like a pretty risky venture. Yeah. Yeah. It, so in 1947, three years after his father died, Ertegun founded Atlantic records. Ertegun. Erdogan, at first the label was home to jazz and R&B artists, including Ray Charles, the company's first big star. So in the late 1950s, Erdogan took on his first assistant, a guy by the name of Phil Spector. Does that name mean anything to you? Oh, I, it sure does. Okay. I sure okay. know about Phil Spector. <laughs> Listen, let okay. me tell you, of all, the, oh, good. Of, of all the men who beat women, oh, no. Phil Spector, he is, he is one of, he's the heavyweight champion. Oh, is that why they, he dubbed his crew the Wrecking Crew? I think so. It, it, well, that's what he Here's called the, his fists before he took it out on Ronnie. Oh, from uh, Eddie Money song, Ronnie yeah, Spector. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same people again. <laughs> well, in all fairness, like she's singing part of one of her original songs in that song. So that, that one, I, that one, I'll, I'll I'll give it a pass for you know the same people. Cause, okay. Yeah, because that's more like. That woman is 20 years past her prime and you know, it, that was a good song. I really like that Eddie Money song. I think that's the best, uh, you know, sax fo- solo of any song, but there's it could a, be debated better than Baker street. Ooh, I don't know. There's a few good saxophone solos out oh, there. You know, sure. it's a, you, what, uh, you know, it's a, actually a really good one is, a uh, um, midnight city. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a I good sax. Yeah. That's a good saxophone that. solo, but, but the saxophone right. solo in, in, um, take me home tonight. It's, that is a good one. Eddie money. Great artist. 
Yes. Gosh, yes. I wonder. I wonder uh, what. I'm just going to look this up right now. Let's see. Oh, let's God. see uh, what Eddie Money's parents point. did. <laughs> let's, what? No, oh, okay. let's just that find is, out. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Eddie Mahoney. Okay, yeah, you know. Okay, so yeah, oh, Irish that. Catholic. Yeah, okay, his dad was a cop. That's that's just a the thing. There it is. Well, well uh, <laughs> literally, but no, yeah, Irish cop in, in New York City. Okay, that's sure. innocent enough. Innocent enough. All right, go. Right, okay, right. all right. All right. So Atlantic, you know, after uh, Phil Spector, you know, the first assistant, soon shifted focus to rock luminaries like Eric Clapton, Led Zeppelin, and the Rolling Stones. Would later uh, join the label stable of content. Um, let's see here. So, curiously enough, Columbia Records, the corporate entity that signed the birds, where do you think they're they're from? Um, the corporate district entity? Columbia District of okay. Columbia. Okay. Well, they're Columbia Records. I was thinking like Columbia the country, but oh, yeah. I guess District of Columbia, That's Washington DC. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. that makes sense. Oh, jeez. Yeah, the name is derived from the District of Columbia, where the label was founded and first headquartered some, uh, this might be a little, uh, like 130 years ago. So it would appear that the first two record labels that signed and launched Laurel Canyon's first two rock or folk rock bands were not only major record labels, but um, also happened to be corporate entities that had deep ties to the nation's center of power. Isn't that, isn't that nice? Nice to know. That's, <laughs> it's kind of disturbing, honestly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so with Laurel Canyon's other bands as well, it was the major record labels, not upstart independents that signed the new artists. So the people that you were talking about that, hey, let's go uh, start a record label. Those weren't the types of people starting these these major labels. No, of course not. You know? <laughs> no, no, no. And it was these major labels that provided these people with instruments and amplifiers. Uh, it was. Why are they providing that- these people with instruments and amps? Shouldn't they didn't know how to play their instruments? Oh, oh, they didn't. Oh, they weren't already established bands that were, you know, putting their nose to the grindstone and and trying to to find their way in the music world. They would meet, like, hey, what's your name? And then five days later, they'd like be on the road. (laughs) Like, you know what? It's that bad. There were, there were, I remember hearing all these stories from all these bands, like in the, in the 70s and like around that era where the bands could, they couldn't play their instrument. And, and, and then when you find out that these bands are like, they're still global phenomenons today. And the, the whole reason that they started was because the military knew that they could control young people through mm-hmm. music. So they said, oh. here, son, you're going to play guitar. Oh, but dad, I don't want to play guitar. I want to play lacrosse. No, no, son, you're going to play guitar and you're going to have a lot of money and you're going to have a lot of girls and you're going to have a lot of whatever you want. Yeah. The law, the law won't even apply to you either. Yeah. Oh, that too. Well, well, are you foreshadowing with John Phillips? (laughs) Well, well, Pick pick one, John Phillips, okay. David Crosby. I mean, seriously, Jim Morrison. Uh, yeah, Elmer Valentine. You know, the, we could do a brief history of the whiskey a go go. You know that that we got that too. But we're, we're still, that's the Valentine we're, we're on, guy. That's El- Elmer Valentine, right? Yeah, that's Elmer whiskey. Valentine. He's okay. a bad dude. But yeah, you oh, have is these. He? <laughs> you know, you mean he's not a nice guy? Oh, so 
So it was the major labels that released and then heavily promoted, uh, you know, these albums. And much folk rock was recorded and issued by huge corporations. They're broadcast over. But radio I thought they were anti-corporation <laughs> and establishment. Oh yeah, it's funny how it didn't actually work out that way. Oh okay, well go on. And uh, you know, broadcast over radio and television stations owned for the most part by the same or similar pillars of the establishment. Uh, the corporate titans of all three branches of the mainstream media, print, radio, and television. So they did their part to help out the titans of the record industry. Um, so like AM radio and some uh, sometimes primetime network television would act as a primary conduit for this countercultural expression. Um, gosh, and then it's interesting, too, that even conservative corporate controlled AM stations across the country almost immediately began giving serious airplay to the new sounds coming out of Southern California. And uh, network televi- television even gave gave the rising stars unprecedented coverage and exposure because you really didn't have TV before. And it just gave another another pillar or branch for these people to branch out into. Right, because t- TV, um, like uh, it's like that joke in uh, Back to the Future. And it's like, oh, we got this TV. And it's like, you have TV? Like, yeah, you know, we have two. You have two? Like, oh, come on, no one has two. He's just joking with you. Like that. That was still kind of a a, a novelty. Yeah. No. Like you. Flash forward, you got TVs in your hand. But yeah, yeah, you have multiple TVs in your hand. A double TV. Yeah, you have a TV in your hand while your TV's on, and you got another TV behind you. You got your, you got your, uh, uh, what are they called? Your tablet, your phone, and and your actual TV. Yeah. Yeah, so most people were listening to the radio, but then TV came along, and TV was cutting edge. Like, it showed you, an, it, was, it was a window into another reality. Mm-hmm. And... and- and seeing oh. these people on that medium made it way mm-hmm. more powerful. And it also, uh, made it much easier to, to spread any kind of message. Like look at all the girls screaming as the Beatles get off the plane. That's the oh, place yeah. to be. Go on. Yeah. And, and you also had, you know, TV is that, I mean, it, it's new, it's the thing, but you also had print media at the time. Um, what I guess you would consider more digital now, but yeah, the print media did its part to raise awareness uh, of the new music countercultural scene. You know, you had new releases by the birds that were often accompanied by large ads and trade magazines that simultaneously plugged the records and upcoming TV appearances. Like they have the ultimate like synergy going on. They probably all owned like all these subsidiaries, even, um, you know, Buffalo Springfield, all those guys, they managed to find themselves appearing as guests on an, uh, gosh, an impressive array of network television shows, um, including American band, uh, American bandstand, American bandstand. Yeah. The, the Smothers brothers show. I, I like the Smothers brothers. Oh, you've heard of these. I've yeah. I know the, Smothers the Andy Williams show, but the Della Reese show, the go show, Andy Williams show, Hollywood palace, where the action is Joey Bishop's late night show and a local program known as boss city. Um, gosh, I mean, that would be nice. You release a song or have a release and then you get to go literally on like a tour of a, like a marketing campaign. 
Right. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of what the, it's like the, the modern day equivalent of like actors going on Jimmy Kimmel and, um, Seth Meyers and Jimmy Fallon. It's like the equivalent of that. It's like you have a Mm -hmm. movie coming out and then just everywhere, like you're going on every show. I mean, that's different now because not as many people like that stuff, but at the time everyone like, because you know, there's three channels. Yes. So like, you know, you have a one in three chance of seeing one of these bands. If you have your TV on. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I didn't put that into perspective either. I didn't think of that. Yeah. There weren't, it wasn't like you had, you didn't have cable. Yeah. Yeah. Like not even like, like cable. You didn't (laughs) have, yeah. yeah, You didn't have like the fishing channel, Chinese boxing and, uh, and, uh, the, the wiffle ball channel and, like all now these, you can watch people do. A, they could slap each other. <laughs> you see yeah, those? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I have. It's just kind of funny. I wouldn't watch it, but I'm I'm glad that it exists because some some uh, people need a good slapping. Yes, they do. Yes. But and and not only were there only three channels, but they were it wasn't broadcast all day because you know uh, they they would end the transmission with the, uh, the you know the national anthem, right? And then you know <laughs> good night. And then you, you have the little Indian head. <laughs> I don't remember yeah. that, but I'll take your word for yeah. it. Okay, well, you've definitely seen it before in movies. You've just not realized what it was. Okay. Like, if you've seen any movie that either takes place in, like, the 70s or 80s, like, there, well, there's well, usually scenes where they have that, where someone's watching the TV and then it signs off like that. So, it's not like, you know, they were going on Cause the, the 24 hour news cycle, that's a novelty thing. That was a new thing. Like that was Ted Turner's idea. So before the TV was only the programs running from like six to like 10 or 11 PM. Like it wasn't going on very late. So most of the TV that people were watching was probably after school, after work. So these programs with these ads. It's not like they were on at, you know, 11 AM where, you know, moms are, you know, they're, they're cleaning the house, they're vacuuming and making the apple pie and they're on their way to get their hair done and all that other stereotypical stuff. No, no, that stuff is going to be on at prime time for the whole family to see it because they want the, primarily the teenagers and the young kids to see it because that's the target audience. So. It, it was probably on all the channels. That makes sense. I mean, it was a craze. Yeah. And, all, and, it, all and it's, a, it, and those crazes start for a reason. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it kicks off somewhere. And that's how it starts is it. They, so the whole thing, this whole sixties music world, it's all fake. It was, it was all created. Sure. The songs do exist. And I I have a feeling if there is ever any, like, here's the actual truth of what happened. I bet less people performed the songs than we realize. I bet more studio musicians performed the songs but we'll probably never have like, that'll be declassified 
with uh, the with the Kennedy Papers. Yeah, so, I'll have to look look at my notes because there was someone who's uh, quoted as saying like when David Crosby would go out on stage, he would just embarrass them for forty minutes. <laughs> well, I mean, look at him. He's, he, yeah, he, I think it was could, Stephen Stills who said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you I, actually, you know, some of these guys could kind of play a little bit. Sure, or they would write I, all the songs or they record every instrument on the album. You know, yeah, and they got yeah. These, these guys related to uh, people. Uh, that own like Royalty. the Mayflower or something. Yeah, <laughs> like taking people over to the New World. Like the people who discovered the New World are like <laughs> get to play guitar in this band. Like yeah, and you know, and, and David Crosby is like one of the ugliest people I've ever seen in my he life. He is. Yeah, he's very, very gross looking. Yeah, he look. He's like a fat walrus, and he's like always looked like that. He's just terrible, and um. And this was a guy that was, was chosen to be kind of one of the faces of a generation. But like I was saying, this, this whole music scene is, it's completely fabricated. It's all fake. It is. And, and, and it was, hold on, you, you know, put your, yeah, put your it. pin in your thought. Right. And it, it had to start somewhere cause they can't like as powerful as the CIA and the military industrial complex may be. They can't just like kick your door down, put a gun to your head and say like, you love the doors. You love Frank Zappa. Like you can't, that doesn't work. So they have to trick people into thinking that it was their idea and it's their thing. And it's like, you you know, that, that whole thing, like, oh, if your parents like it, it's not cool. Like it. And, th- and that's, and that's kind of how it was marketed, even though all of these people, like I, one thing I've come across is a lot of them, oh, I had this, he had a, a rough childhood. His father drank a lot. Like yet somehow <laughs> all of these people's parents ha- basically are responsible for their wealth and social status. So the whole idea behind, we'll just call it the hippie music scene. Yeah. We'll just call it that for the sake of argument. What was that? It was rebel. Like it, it's, it's pretty much you're rebelling against your parents. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the point of it. And they, they had to convince the youth that that's what it was because the, the music is lame. It's, it's not more exciting Boy. than like Chuck Berry. Or, um, Johnny be good. Yeah. Or, uh, like Bill Haley in the comments, even the, like the big bopper, like the, the, the big bopper. there were, there were artists where their, their songs had, had some kick to it. See, like I understand punk rock and, and to, you know, another, a greater extent, heavy metal. Like there is a, like there is an aggression and evolution. Like it, it feels like, like all of the emotions that you're having just in audio form. That's how it is. But with like, um, hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> it doesn't sound very rebellious, but Maybe if, if you know, if you're, drugs. yep. If you're strung out, <laughs> then it's probably pretty easy to listen to. But that was the whole point of the music is like, listen, take these drugs and the songs will sound great psychedelia yes 
you have, have you ever you've you've seen the movie Inception, right? Yeah, and I say it like that because I've seen it a bunch of times and still can't really tell you what it's about. Well, do you remember the scene at the end when the guy has the pinwheel that he got from his dad in the dream? Oh, I mean, I know I've seen it. Oh gosh, dang it. All right. Well, I'll just go over the whole scene. Cause that's, that's the whole (laughs) point of the inception thing is like, um, the guy says early on, don't think of elephants. What are you thinking of? And the guy says elephant. He's like, exactly. That's why inception doesn't work. But the whole idea was they had to put an idea into someone's head and make them think that it was their idea. And that is basically how the hippie music was sold. They were the countercultural revolutionary sound of a generation, but the generation didn't need to rebel. There was nothing to rebel against. (laughs) And, and it's all framed like, well, these people are rebelling against their parents, but all of them, they were all from the same, they were all from the East coast. And then they all met up on the West coast. And then they suddenly started being these anti-war protest bands but none of them had any real anti-war songs. They just kind of said, yeah, we're against this thing. And their, their main vehicle for being against it was just doing drugs and doing nothing. Like they, they had platitudes. They didn't have any real demonstrations and they didn't have any real power, but these musicians had the real power. They had the power to genuinely brainwash a generation and get them addicted to drugs by tricking them into thinking that this terrible music that's really popular will be good if they just take drugs. Yeah. And this movement, if, if they were the counterculture and, and, you know, rebellion, the the government could have squashed them in a second, but they were propping them exactly. up and, and kind of to put like a pin, not a pin in this, but like. Kind Put a bow, like, yeah, bow, bow around it. Yeah, so in this, here it is. In September 1965, the nation's premier news, uh, news weeklies, news weeklies, Time and Newsweek ran virtually uh, simultaneous stories on the folk rock craze. Just months after the first folk rock release had climbed to the top of the charts, the country's biggest daily newspapers chimed in as well providing an inordinate ordinate amount of coverage of the emerging scene. So by the end of 1967, the movement had its very own publication, might have heard of it, Rolling Stone, which initially is designed to look as though it were a product of the underground press. It was, without question, very much a corporate mouthpiece. So there you go. Yeah, and if they were <laughs> actual, like, an enemy of the state, then they would do something about it. Like it's, I mean, it's not like the government doesn't have the power to shut down anything they don't like. Of course they do, but, but not just that, but do you you think the government doesn't have the power to, to cut, uh, cable broadcasts? I mean, it's not cable at at the time, but to, to cut TV broadcasts. Well, they, they, they can regulate yeah. what they put on TV. They can say, yes. you can't put that on TV. <laughs> well, they can even, uh, you know, 
to silence you, it's a very powerful tool, is involuntary military service. <laughs> they could do that. that yep, that's that you yeah, can they, be they, pressed into service. <laughs> you know, let a, like, oh, you can't watch this. Like, no, there, you're, you're going to war because you think this way. Uh, yeah, there's, there's <laughs> plenty of workarounds, but instead the, the, they were amplifying it because the, this, this whole idea and let's say they were anti-war, you know, they, they could have been, but the Vietnam war didn't seem to be about winning. As far as I could tell the whole purpose of the Vietnam war, which uh, may have been started. uh, Well, I mean, not may have been started by, you know, the whole, the government as a whole, but, but Jim Morrison's father was, was, was the proverbial man on the ground for the beginning of that. But it was just to expand the military budget. So, so while these people are out there saying like, make love, not war, they're not really hurting the war effort because the, the, they're, they're just saying things. It's not slowing anything down. Like, 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 and the, let's say, uh, something like that. Well, it might hurt, um, like an enlistment, like less people are enlisting. Well, there's a draft going on. They're drafting people for it. So it doesn't matter because it's like, these guys come out here, like don't join the military. And they're like, we don't care if you guys don't join. If we want you to join, we'll just draft you. And if you don't go, we'll throw you in jail because we have the force to do that because we have the power to do that. And, and uh, these people. These were the ones that were calling the, the, the people returning from Vietnam baby killers. The hippies were the ones saying, you baby killers. Oh yeah. So they're, they're not dumping on the high ranking military officials. They're attacking the grunts. They're attacking the jarheads. That's who these people are going after. They have no idea what they're doing. They didn't hurt the military industrial complex at all. They just demoralized all the people that were unfortunate enough to have their name pulled out of a hat. Man. And, and all you hear about is like, oh, these Vietnam vets, like they're all messed up in the head and because of the stuff they had to do and they saw, and then they come back and they're like protested against and people are throwing stuff at them, calling them baby killers. Like it's just just an awful situation an awful culture to really be well these people didn't know what they were doing they were no, they were they told everything that they did it, they were these people were the real soldiers like the the war being fought at that time was not the vietnam war it was the war on the domestic front and it was the culture war mm. and those were the real recruits by the military, the military used James Taylor and, and Jackson Brown and all those, those jokers to be the actual recruiters. Like those were the generals. And just because you're not wearing camouflage and holding a rifle doesn't mean that you're not fighting a war. And all of these people that were fighting these wars, they, they had no idea that they were even, that they were pressed into service. They had no idea. 
So they are, they're taking drugs, ruining their future. They're letting the government have their way with the country, which that's when the country really took its, its downturn. Oh, these people went to Woodstock. What a great time. Like, yeah, they were just, they were in in endless hedonism. It's, 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 oh, it was a a thing of a generation. You had to be there. It's like all you, it was basically like a generational orgy. Nothing productive happened as a result. Like people got together, did drugs, had anonymous sex and listened to bad music that was sanctioned by the the CIA and the military industrial complex. And they also brought their kids into it, which also further ruined the lives of the kids that were involved that were subject to, to that, that, that too. But they treat this like this was them, like, like storming Normandy, like, (laughs) like this, this this was, this was like, you know, the shots fired on, on Fort Sumter, but like, all you did was go to a concert and you did drug. This was the, the, the real war that was being fought in the sixties. It was the war for America's soul and through the Laurel Canyon hippie music scene. America died. I believe that is when America died. Now there'll be people that will say this event, this event, this event. There were many cataclysmic moments in America's history. And all of those were wounding injuries. I think this was the, the proverbial spear that caused the death of America. This is when you're right. This is when people. They, they, they gave into pleasure and they said no to order just is literally in the name of pleasure. And they let the government rearrange everything about it. Everything that made the country ordered and, uh, and structured and safe and harmonious. And they, they, they gave it all away. Now, granted, it's not like all those people that were hippies that were, you know, dropping acid in the sixties, listening to, to Jefferson airplane, like, oh, they all became homeless junkies that are all crazy with, no, a lot of them went on to have pretty successful careers because, you know, eventually they, they, they did hit a certain age, like, well, time to get a job, but the jobs that they were given, there was probably the equivalent of a starting wage of like. $35, $40 an hour today, just because, you know, inflation's so bad that, you know, I I throw those numbers out, but pretty good wages that they were able to, to leverage a lack of labor in exchange for a higher wage. Like, yeah, well, this guy offered me this much. I don't know. Can you match that? Can you beat that? And that was kind of the tale of the boomer is they dropped acid. They ignored the real problems in the country. And when they were done with their, with their orgy drug fest, they, they went on to a world that they didn't realize they were too busy partying to realize was being destroyed. And they didn't have to live with those repercussions because it was a can that was kicked down the road and it was done by design. 
And there were so many things that happened. And then a lot of people, you know, they, they do say things about boomers and, and like, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just like condemn every baby boomer because you, you just, you can't, you can't just blanket. Well, it's not blame. helpful. We want to. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of yeah. people that probably did try to do something, but, mm-hmm. but this is why they, up they against a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, yeah. They, and that's why they brainwashed the masses. They brainwashed the masses. So the people that actually were paying attention and cared were over, overran. Like what, what can you do? Like, because you know, the state is willing to use force against people. Oh yeah. And, and like when you're just there, like. I mean, we should be doing something, but everyone else is dropping acid. Like I, I can't do this Not by myself. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. Uh, but yeah, these but are, but if the, you're these, just like, what am I, what am I supposed to do? Me. <laughs> yeah. Like what? Well, I can't, I can't do anything. There's three of us against 5,000 hippies. Uh, okay. well, there's three of us and the 5,000 hippies should be helping us against the guys with guns <laughs> against yeah. the state. Well, you mentioned, an, you know, Jim Morrison, obviously, and you had mentioned that you believe that he was Rush Limbaugh. And uh-huh. I have, I, I no, have, I, I mentioned that people oh. believe that. Oh, well, well I, I, I came across some, some interesting stuff that may help your claim because this is, this is tied to you now. It's not my claim. People, yeah. You made it sound like it was yours. You no, you misinterpreted you me it. because you don't listen. I'm trying to help prove you right here. Okay? <laughs> I did, it's not my, it's not my <laughs> hypothesis. You believe this, okay? No, I don't. We'll get to Hendrix next. Gosh dang. All right. All right. But remember, remember our friend, uh, good old Vito Palekas, the, uh, and the and freakers, freakers. Vito yeah. of the freakers. Vito. Yes. Yes. Well, he appeared uh, regularly on this show called the Pine, the the Joe Pine Show. Do you know who Joe Pine is? Uh, anyway, uh, is, the Joe is Pine he, Show. Okay, hold yeah. on, hold on, hold on. Is he? Um, this isn't a joke. Is he related to Chris Pine? Because I, I know because Chris Pine, Chris Pine's dad Could was be. the was the guy from. He was the main guy in the show Chips. Not okay. Not uh, Eric Estrada, the other one. So that's why I ask it. Cause that guy that's, is that's from possible. Los Angeles. So hmm. I wonder if that's like a family thing. Oh no, this looks like it's spelled P Y N E. Yeah. I guess there's a different pine. Yes. Yeah. Not on a tree, but so anyways, for, for us that are, I guess, too young to remember Joe pine is the guy that you have to thank for paving the way for the likes of Bill O'Reilly. Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Michael Savage, Don Imus, Morton Downey, uh, Jerry Springer, and Wally George, because... Bob Grant? Uh, uh, did I say that? No, I didn't say that. Wally George. I know, but and Bob Grant. Maybe. Uh, so Pine was the guy who pioneered the confrontational interview style favored by so many today. And the decorated Marine Corps veteran debunked or debuted as a talk radio uh, host. Marines, eh? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's funny how all these people... Uh, his favorite targets, as you may have guessed, included hippies, feminists, gays, and anti-war activists. And his interviews frequently net, uh, ended with his guests either walking off or being thrown off the stage. Okay. And, and, so, and I bet this was really satisfying for a lot of people at the time. Because yeah. the, the hippie movement wasn't a, a really popular thing. It's, it's not like something like, like the punk rockers or like the metal people or the new wavers or the, the grunge rockers, or it wasn't like that where it was like, here's the people that do that. Like the hippies were pretty unpopular. Yeah. So it's probably nice seeing this guy, like, look at, oh, look at these dumb people. Like that's, that's a very, like. Like a Sean Hannity thing, like get like a really <laughs> embarrassing person to make Sean Hannity mm-hmm. look smarter than he is. So like, he's like, he's got some hippie on, he's got like flower power painted on their oh, face. Yeah. And then they're, and then when they get thrown off, someone's like, oh, that was awesome. Wow. That was so great. I loved that. Go, go on, yeah. go back to Joe all Pine. Right. Well, we're Joe, well, we're done with Joe Pine because he. So, well, my point was all right. That's I know the guy who, who paved the way for Rush Limbaugh. But, I got gotcha. you. But so okay, now back to Jim Morrison. Um, by virtually all accounts, he was a, ver- a voracious, uh, voracious reader. Former teachers and college professors expressed amazement at the breadth and depth of his knowledge on various topics and at the staggering array of literary sources that he could accurately cite and yet he was known to tell interviewers that he hadn't studied politics that much really but that was okay because according to uh drummer john densmore since a lot of people at our concerts at least um they're sort of it seems like they don't really come to hear us speak politics uh yeah that's the. but i thought they were political (laughs) Yeah, uh, no, apparently not. They uh, kept to themselves. Obviously, oh. you're going to tell people that uh, you know you don't know anything. I'm just some dummy who takes acid. But I'm uh, I'm also. But I thought they were political activists. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the idea? Is that those bands were like, weren't they supposed to be activists? I mean, I, I thought right. That these, I, these warriors. David Crosby was known for his outspoken personality mm-hmm. and politics. Well, that's the way it was in the 1960s. You see, the young folks of that era just didn't concern themselves much with politics and certainly didn't want their anti-war icons engaging in anything resembling political discourse. Hmm. That sounds convenient. So, so yeah, I didn't really have, uh, you know, a smoking gun that that's uh, Jim Morrison is Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, that but... was the that that wasn't that wasn't even like a, a lukewarm gun. That gun is <laughs> ice cold. That All gun right. was found in the Arctic. All right, now let's go ice fishing. Now, yeah, yeah, gonna we're going to find gonna, that gun we're, there. We're, yeah, we're going to go ice fishing. Uh, so here I have the Laurel Canyon death death list. There, there's some good names. You didn't want to tell me about how Jimi Hendrix is Morgan Freeman? Well, he can go be, ahead. I, I did, go ahead. Yeah, he could be nice. Go ahead. Tell me. All right, all right. Well, though he rarely spoke of it, Jimmy had served a stint in the U.S. Army with the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell. 
His okay. official records indicate that he was forced into the service by the courts and then released after just one year when he purportedly proved to be a poor soldier. Uh, that's funny. One that wonders, funny. though, why he was assigned to such an elite division if he was indeed such a failure. Stupid Jimmy. One also wonders why he wasn't subjected to disciplinary measures rather than being handed a free pass out of his ostensibly court-ordered service. See, that you could get military-ordered service. In any nope. event, Jimi Hendrix, or Jimmy himself, once told reporters that he was given a medical discharge after breaking an ankle during a parachute jump. However, one biographer has claimed, this is funny, has claimed that Jimmy faked being gay to earn an early release. How do you fake being gay? Uh, you Never kiss mind. a man. <laughs> just, I mean, you don't want to go alas, much further than that. A, <laughs> the truth, alas, remains elusive. At the time of Jimmy's death, the first person called by his girlfriend, Monica Danaman. Do we need to go over? Eh, maybe. Uh, Monica Danaman, last to see Hendrix alive, was Eric Burden of the Animals. Two years early, Burden had relocated to L.A. and taken over ringmaster duties from Frank Zappa after Zappa had va uh, vacated the log cabin and moved into a less high-profile Laurel Canyon home. Within a year of Jamie's death, a reported prostitute-turned-groupie named Devin Wilson, who had been with Jimmy the day before his death, plunged from an eighth floor window of New York's Chelsea Hotel. Uh, March 5th, 1973, a shadowy character named Michael Jeffrey, who had managed both Hendrix and Burden, was killed in a mid-air plane collision. Jeffrey was known to openly boast of having organized crime connections and of working for the CIA. After Jimmy's death, it was discovered that Jeffrey had been funneling most of Hendrix's gross earnings into offshore accounts in the Bahamas linked to international drug trafficking. Years later, on April 5th, 1996, Daneman, the daughter of a wealthy German industrialist, was found dead near her home in a fume-filled Mercedes. Conclusion, Jimi Hendrix is Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> Good detective work. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I was you actually waiting for the part where Jimi Hendrix met with uh, the, the rest of the experience in Los Angeles. Uh, apparently he was Cass Elliot's husband. I had no idea about that. Yeah, and but they apparently they uh they said that she died from choking on a sandwich, and apparently yes. that wasn't true. Oh, that was the only <laughs> thing I knew about her. <laughs> Choked on a ham. She kind of looks like like a, like an early version of Adele, you know, when she was big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real big. Oh. Man, I was going to talk about Jim Morrison. I was ready to go, but I read... What? Now Jimmy talk Hendrix. about Jim Morrison. Now that you've explained to everybody that okay, Jimi Hendrix yes. is Morgan Freeman with... All right. The, with, now, like, that, I've never heard such a uh, clad iron case. All right, well, this this is even, this is even shorter to the point. So, oh. <laughs> so Jim Morrison... This is know, why I'm the host, ladies and gentlemen. Yep, 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 yep. That's your episode. Jim Morrison, who for a time lived in a home on Rotten or Rothdell Trail behind the Laurel Canyon Country Store, may or may not have died in Paris on July 3rd, 1971. Dun-dun-dun. The events of that day remain shrouded in mystery and rumor, and the details of the story, such as they are, have changed over the years. What is known is that on that very same day, 
that he died, Admiral George Stephen Morrison delivered the keynote speech at a decommissioning ceremony for the aircraft carrier USS Bonham Richard, from where seven years earlier he had helped choreograph the Tonkin Gulf incident. A few years after Jim's death, his common-law wife Pamela Curson dropped dead as well, officially of a heroin overdose. Like Hendricks, Morrison had been an avid student of the occult with a particular fondness for the work of Alistair, Alistair Crowley. According to the supergroupie Pamela Despares, he had also read all he could about incest and sadism. Also that's like a, Hendrix. That's <laughs> a good thing to just read yeah. up about. Like, yeah, I, you know, I understand there's a, there's, there's a concept where <laughs> you have uh, sexual relations with someone in your own family. I need Ooh. to know more because there's got to yeah, be more, more than that. Would you like to know more? <laughs> I feel like it's pretty self-explanatory. And yeah. here, here, here's, Thank here's, you, here's super groupie. well, here's my question. Okay. Um, where do you look up research on more of that? Who wrote Probably. that? Who wrote it? No, no, no. I, this is a serious <laughs> question. Who, who is writing about incest? Because, because again, if someone's uh, writing about incest, you know, the government has the ability to, you know, use force to shut people down. You think, uh, you would think, and, and why is the, um, <laughs> I mean, is, uh, we know who his dad is. Why is your son, Mr. Morrison reading all about incest? And uh, did you teach him here? something? Uh, oh, oh. goodness. Because generally that's where that stuff comes from. Sometimes, you know, usually your parents pass down like what sport teams they like, like the Cowboys or the the Raiders. No, no, you need to read about incest and sadism. I just want to know where, I just want to know where you read up on it. Cause there's two, two things about that is, um, not on the internet at that time, obviously. Right. Yes. But the the thing is, one, I don't know why anyone, maybe this is because my brain operates at a normal wavelength, but I don't know why you would need. Normal in quotes. Right. Yes, of course. Always in quotes. (laughs) I don't know why you would need to look up with it because it seems pretty like explanatory. Like it's what is, what is incest? Uh, it is sexual relations for members of, of the same family. Can you tell me more? I, I told you all there is to know about it. Like, that's it. Huh? You have a paper for me to read? That's all there is. Like, you don't need any more. But two, how well, do you find this? Like, does he, do you, do you go to the library? You check the Dewey decimal system, find some books on incest. Well, you probably have access to government files. And well, stuff. there you go. You probably have access mother. to yeah, you probably have access to the. We're into what, that stuff too. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, read all he could about incest and sadism, and also like Hendrix and Wilson, I believe Dennis Wilson uh, from the Beach Boys. Morrison was just twenty-seven at the time of his possible death. So yeah, that's another like twenty-seven club. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that thing. Just like the twenty-seven club. The thing is, like, you look at how many young artists died at 27, but look at how many young people die at various ages. 
Like I, I would guess you like if there were a chart for people that die at certain ages, you know, like it would probably be the, the thickest more towards like the seventies, <laughs> but you know, like when you're young, like how many people died at 27? You can say like, well, these were really famous rock stars. Like, yeah. But these were all degenerate people like uh Kurt Cobain, uh, pretty degenerate. Uh, Tupac, uh, very degenerate. Jimi Hendrix, degenerate. Janis Joplin. Degenerate. <laughs> Jim Morrison. Into incest. The degenerate no, something that. else. Yeah, so like the, these people, the, the whole, this whole lifestyle, this, this rock and roll lifestyle, it, it all started here. Like I, I'm sure. Cause I know a lot of like jazz musicians, like heroin was, was really prominent there. I have no idea why that like that to me, that's so weird. Like just you do jazz, you got to do heroin too. That I, I don't get it, but it's not like music is always like it was once a sacred, a wholesome thing. And then, you know, along came a spider. No, it, it's always had its baggage, but like, this is where it all started. Like the whole rock star lifestyle, like drink, drinking all night, Coke all night, random women all night like that. It all started here. And, and this is, this is when like divorce, this was the era when divorce mm, became yes. like normal. Michelle like it, Phillips. Michelle Phillips. Well, John Phillips. John uh, Phillips had many wives. <laughs> yeah, one of <laughs> yes. He had like five wives, uh, four wives. Sorry, he only he only divorced three of them. We'll we'll get into him because there are some really just you know. Speaking of incest, you know, I'll bring I'll bring one John Phillips story that I came across. I came McKenzie? Across, uh, no, it was I think the youngest one. I don't know. I don't think it was China. It was like, is it Bijou or something like that? Bijou Phillips? Bijou the Phillips. actor? Isn't she an actress? Yeah. She was um, in this like kitty porn ad, a Calvin Klein ad or something. Oh, that's she good. Like, oh, it's like kitty porn ad or whatever. But anyways, on the night before she was going to get married, John Phillips raped her. And then he was in a relationship with his daughter. Until he, until she got pregnant, she she didn't know who the father was, and apparently he admitted in an interview that that he had known that she had gotten raped by gun uh, or a knife point. So he literally raped her with a knife and told people about it. And apparently she has a tattoo on her. It's either um, a tramp stamp or on on her actual buttocks that says "Daddy." So that's a John Phillips for you. So well, reading about that. Did, did you know that she dated John Lennon and Yoko Ono's son? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. But I know that, that China Phillips uh, married uh, Billy Baldwin in oh, 95. The inferior Baldwin? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, isn't that nice? Well, but Bijou yeah, Phillips was married to uh, Danny Masterson. No way. He's going away for a long time. Yeah, and that's why I believe they separated. Mm. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know much about China Phillips. I just know about Mackenzie and I only know about Mackenzie because of her incestuous uh, <laughs> abuse from her father. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, they were all like in celebrity rehab too, like in ah, shoot. We'll go over it with the John Phillips stuff cuz there's a lot to go. Like I said, it could be a whole series just with that that guy. Yeah, that well he's pretty he, bad. Yeah, and the thing is with that guy, it's it's less about his background, where you know he was the son of a military figure. Yes, and uh, he has the same he has the same backstory as all those other people, but he has so much scandal attached to him, Mm -hmm. like more so because because the rest of them they were just junkies that were having a lot of promiscuous sex, and with the exception of um. Uh, Frank Zappa, who wasn't a junkie, but he was, had a, had a extremely inappropriate and I would definitely classify it as a abusive relationship with his daughter. Yes. But most of them, they were just, they were just junkies and they were playing bad music and it was, it, it was, it wasn't just reshaping the, the, like the political views of the audience, but it was changing everyone's perception of both the music industry and musicians. Mm. Like before, like, again, we bring up the, like the sales and it it just, it, it turned music from kind of like a niche hobby into like, this is the thing. Like, like what kind of music do you listen to? Like that became a thing where before it was probably like, do you like music? Cause there's probably people like, nah, I don't listen to music where this turned it. Like, you have to be into music and music now is, is, is it's all political. It's all political now. Mm-hmm. And that the ads like, like the lady Gaga COVID, uh, Pfizer ad that or too, like that, stuff that too, is, you know, it, that hits both things. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And <laughs> which, and, and the, yeah, the, I mean that, that's, you know, weird in and of itself, but this is what set the stage for music being, uh, un, like it's, it's like when people say like, oh, you, you got to separate the art from the artist, but the mm-hmm. artist is, or the art is defined by the artist. You, how do you, how do you separate the two? Because the, the whole point of, of this, and it's hard to call this art because it has such a a specific purpose. It's not so much like this is an art, like, you know, why I went to make my music, you know, I, I had a, a specific purpose in doing it. We all do. We all have our own agendas, but this, this wasn't like, let's make money like this. This really was let's, let's reshape a nation there. This, this is, and the reason I I don't want to call this art compared to other things is because it's essentially an ad. It's a marketing campaign. Cause it's not like Depeche mode and the cars where, you know, these were people that wanted to play this type of music and record labels just said, Hey, let's take advantage of these artists, which is, that was, that became the norm. Just like find, find someone that sounds like what's popular, promote them, you know, chew them up, spit them out. 
and, and whatever sticks sticks, otherwise who cares? And you know, F you pay me where here they created the, the artist. So there was no real art. There was no inspiration. There was no, like, you know, I, I picked up my, uh, I picked up my lute and I just started playing. <laughs> I let the music guide me. And that's how I came to this man. No, it was, it was a bunch of generals and men in black suits with, with black sunglasses and their earpieces in just they're writing this music for them. And they're pro probably in a lot of cases recording it for them. Mm -hmm. So this, this isn't actual art. It is, is genuinely a marketing campaign. Mm -hmm. Go on. Well, I was just going to say, it wasn't like these people were like struggling to survive growing up besides their parents, you know, being these military incestuous figures. Yeah. And, and the thing is, uh, those people probably made pretty good money as far like the military. Oh figure. yeah. No doubt. Yeah. So it's and not all... like, you know, like, you know, my dad was a general and you know, some days you know, we wouldn't have breakfast. No, no. The, these no. people all went to like private schools. Like, listen, yeah. they went to private schools with rock stars. <laughs> Like, imagine you're so rich. You went to elementary school with, with Jim Morrison. That's how rich these people were. Go on, go on. My tirade, my tirade's uh, over. Your tirades are okay. Good. Yeah. I'm, I'm tagging you in. Gosh. Well, it's tough because there's so much more I want to get into. I know we don't have time for it all. Uh, but maybe I can tease a little something. Uh, I'm curious if you have heard about um, this this like murder that took place during a concert of one of the, like the Is it the Hell's Stones. Angels one? <laughs> yes. Okay, yeah, I do know that one. <laughs> the Rolling Stones were playing, right? You do. They, and they, yes. they and they hired the they hired the Hell's Angels to do security. R right. Was that not Woodstock? Um, I don't I don't know exactly what. Or maybe it was, it was some festival in California. Might have been. But yeah, they so one of the re and another thing I want to tease is this guy. His name's Graham Parsons. <laughs> Grant Parsons liked taking hallucinogenic and sometimes hallucinogenics, and sometimes he would take friends like Keith Richards along with him to help with the search for UFOs. <laughs> That's one of my favorite Altamont <laughs> Free Concert. Okay, Altamont Speedway Free Festival, counterculture rock concert in the United States, held on Saturday, December sixth, nineteen sixty nine, at the Altamont Speedway outside of Tracy, California. 300,000 attended the concert. Some anticipated that it would be a Woodstock West. Woodstock had been four months earlier in Bethel, New York. The event is remembered for its use of Hell's Angels as security and its considerable violence, including the stabbing death of Meredith Hunter and three accidental deaths, two by a hit-and-run car accident and one by an LSD-induced drowning in an irrigation canal. Oh, who would have thought? 
Concert featured in order of appearance, Santana, Jefferson Airplane, the Flying Burrito Brothers, and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young with the Rolling Stones taking stage as the final act. The Grateful Dead were also scheduled to perform following CSNY, but shortly before their scheduled appearance, chose not to because they were wanted in Langley. I made that last part up. The Langley is where the CIA is. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of those that just went over the head. Yeah, I figured. That's all right. Appreciate it. I like where your head's at. Though. I'm you. sure someone got it. Someone did. Wasn't me. No, <sighs> that's okay. That's uh, I, it's always fun to explain the joke to you. It makes it funnier. Yeah. Now, did you totally want to talk it. about this person that was killed? Is there something notable about the person that died during this event? There, there's a weird. So I guess I'll. We can go into it later, but. So they ended up making this documentary about the murder. Is it called um, Gimme Shelter? I think it is. And there's someone very famous behind one of the cameras of this documentary. Do you know who it was? Uh, is it... Uh, I, I'm looking at the cast and crew. Uh, I, these None of these names mean anything to me. But I, I have a feeling it's this one. But go ahead. Uh, so George Lucas was behind one of the cameras for the documentary that portrayed the sequence of events, sequence of events incorrectly. Okay. All right. And, that is interesting. And, and, and how, how funny is it that Steven Spielberg, uh, Steven Spielberg had been living on Lookout Mountain in Laurel Canyon in the mid to late 1960s. I had no idea about that. Yes. Well, you know, this is what I'm saying about each thing you come across. It's like, well, what's more important or crazier than the next? Like what, what is this? I'm finding out how my, my, my life has been shaped. (laughs) Like, yeah. Going on. (laughs) Yeah. I thought that was, that was funny. That's interesting. Yeah. And yes, I did want to talk about Graham Parsons, but it's like, we got all this other BS going on. How can you avoid it? But uh, apparently with this, this, um, the hell's angels murder, the song, um, the day of the America or uh, day of America died, the day of the music died. Apparently that song is actually supposed to feature Mick Jagger as the devil. And that this was a ritualistic satanic killing. Yeah. I've so, heard stuff like okay. that. And, and, Here's, here's the thing. Like, I don't know that that's not true. That's how I feel about that stuff. Because, you know, you first hear it, you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But the more you hear about it and the more, like, this is the real incest. It's not Jim Morrison having sex with his dad or whatever. (laughs) It's, it's all of these people that have created this industry, this whole like media empire where, where they use the, the same people over and over and behind it are the same people. It's like the, the, like when we, we've talked about in earlier episodes, like pop music, it's like 15 total people now, like the top yeah. 40, it's the same people over and over, but it's 25 here, people. <laughs> yeah. But here it's, it's, it's all the same people. And, and, and it's not like. At one time, there was all these people, and then five years later, there was a new group. It, it, it really was, it was always the same type of people. It, it's, it's, peop, it's high-ranking, like, government operatives and their children, and all the people that are in charge of the media. And, and this is how 
our worldviews are generated. Our worldviews are not generated by, by us going out and we're, we're traveling to other countries. We're seeing how the cultures interact with each other. And, you know, we're, we're like Anthony Bourdain, you know, going, going around and seeing what, how, how people cook their food and blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. Our entire perception of life comes from music, TV, and movies. And, and it's, and the same people are responsible for showing us how we should live our life. And it all started not just in this era, but here in Laurel Canyon, the music scene and uh, apparently the, (laughs) the movie world. (laughs) Yep. Who would have thought? Yeah. Look, Lookout Mountain was a movie like special Mm -hmm. effects studio. And then you have like the, the master of cinema, Steven Spielberg is, <laughs> is living there. And, and I, and yeah. I say this, I don't know anything about him. Like really, I know he's married to the girl from temple of doom and they've been mm-hmm. married since that's it. I don't know anything about him. So like you saying that, like, it doesn't surprise <laughs> me, but that right. came out of nowhere. nowhere. I, I was yeah. not ready for that. <laughs> yeah. Like when you said behind the camera, I was expecting it to be like Phil Spector or something like that. Yeah, or like no, George know, ex- Lucas. Yeah. I was not ready Darth for Vader. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> behind the cameras, Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> that would actually be pretty funny. Like Darth Vader's running the camera. And that, that, the inspiration for Darth Vader yeah. came from a guy who killed someone at a concert while the Rolling Stones were playing. It's like <laughs> Darth Vader was actually the name of the Hell's Angel who did it. Probably. Oh, there might have been. Darth? <laughs> that Would sounds you really like a be surprised at this? <laughs> no, not at all. Mm. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I am not, I'm, I'm not convinced it's not like a, mm. a satanic ritual. I, especially when you hear that they're all into Aleister Crowley, like Jimmy Page bought Aleister Crowley's house oh, and it was a house that was, gonna, was, it was built over a church that burned down that. and a bunch of people died. Well, I gotta get to that. Like, you don't just buy that house. <laughs> you don't just read that guy's works. No. Like I understand and- someone's like, I want to read about General Patton or I want to read about mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill, or I want to read, uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say Julius Caesar. Yeah. I want to read about Robert E. Lee. Like I want to read about great military figures who reads. I want to read about a satanic occultist. Like what, what inspires you to do that? Nothing. Literally. The only reason you do that is because you're influenced to do that. You don't get bored and pick up a satanic Bible. It doesn't happen. You, you do it because you're influenced. And this is, and, and I do think that was the point of the popularity of heavy metal. It was, it wasn't so much to get people into Satanism to do ritualistic satanic sacrifices. I think that's like the, like that Freemason, you know, that 33rd mm-hmm. order or whatever. I don't know a lot about it, but I know that they, they got some kind of weird thing going on and the, the Illuminati high ranking members got this. I don't know. They got something going yeah. on 
but <laughs> the point of metal was to get people desensitized to it. Cause like you tell people on the streets, like, oh yeah, the, the, this thing happened. It was probably a ritualistic satanic murder. They're going to say you're crazy. Oh, you're you say that demons and ritual satanic yeah. killings. Like you okay, say that, okay, you say that, in the, you up. say that in the forties and fifties, people will probably take it pretty seriously. Well, I think they used to burn people with that type of stuff. Yeah, I think they did. <laughs> simpler times, simpler <laughs> times. Those were the days. Yeah, in the in the summer of '68, the the Rolling Stones had been flirting heavily with Satanism and the cult, um, and spending a lot of time in Los Angeles. Oh, great! So Mick Jagger was involved in two occult-drenched, Crowley-influenced film projects by uh, Ken Kenneth Anger's Lucifer Rising and Donald camel's performance oh not donald uh, trump and no no oh, okay so kenneth anger he also would make um private films for people that wouldn't go out where did he make them so, uh well i, I wonder oh <laughs> so he would later solicit a soundtrack um for the long delayed film project from led zeppelin's jimmy page and Jimmy Page is the proud owner of one of the world's largest collections of Aleister Crowley memorabilia. And then he also, as AC said, uh, he bought Crowley's notorious Bolskin estate on the shores of the Scotland's Loch Ness. Now, like, like, it's not, it's not only something to be looking into this stuff, but to own the large, like, literally the world's yeah. largest, like, memorabilia for the satanic whatever you yeah you don't just yeah you don't just buy you don't just buy this on a whim like i understand like do you ever see the movie rock star uh with mark Wahlberg and yeah yes the the tim ripper owens thing yes is that the one you love that movie don't you no i don't why do you keep (laughs) saying this why you keep trying to embarrass me by attributing i i actually like that movie i'm like the only one and everyone hates that movie but i don't like that movie I I, I I stand by it because I liked it as a kid. <clears throat> yeah, you, yeah, you liked it so much Super you tried time. to pretend that I was the one that liked it. You're yeah, I even clearly, pierced my nipples. Because you're embarrassed by it. <laughs> but th- but there's the part when he starts getting the success and doesn't he buy he buys the Batmobile right like the Adam West one? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. I like I understand you. people buying dumb things like that. You have a lot of money. Like yeah, I'm gonna buy the Batmobile or something like that. But you don't just buy. Alistair Crowley's estate and like his collection of like satanic daggers and candles. You don't like, no, you don't just do that. And anyone listening, like some people do, you only think that you literally only think that because these people did. And you think that that's normal. Nothing about Laurel Canyon is normal. Nothing. Mm-hmm. This is all weird from day one. When you have the singer for the Doors' dad is the admiral <laughs> during the Gulf of Tonkin incident. You have like Frank Zappa, the most bizarre music of all time is like a huge act. And then his dad worked for like the Department of Defense making chemical weapons. All of these people are the son of, they're not just like uh, this guy. His father was a corporal in, uh, in the hundred and first airborne, like some, it's not like simple things. Like they're all high ranking military men. And all of them were from like, they're, they're like 
they lived on the East Coast and had lavish upbringings where they all went to private school, somehow all knew each other, and then they all convened in in the same part of California, in the same part of Los Angeles, around another military base, and then they became the biggest selling musical artists of all time, despite many of them not knowing how to play instruments. <laughs> and you think, well, some people just buy Aleister Crowley's lavish satanic estate. And then they just, well, some people just pick up the satanic Bible one day and they just have a read. It's because of this that you think this is normal. This is not normal. This is insane. And it only seems normal because the world is insane. And in an insane world, insanity seems sane. I'm trying to find the, the thing, but like Hollywood, like supposedly like what a Hollywood is, it's some kind of witchcraft thing. (laughs) Like, like some the, weird group or something like a secret society type thing. No, like literal Hollywood. Oh, the translation or something. Yeah. Like what it is, is, is like, some, I can't remember what it is, but there, I remember hearing about this a while ago where there, there is something about how, like, I can't remember. I don't have a, I don't have it in front of me. That just, it just, that just came, came up. And I, I know that like Hollywood itself, uh, it, it has some kind of occultist meaning because mm. again, you don't just get mm. into the occult yeah. unless you're right. influenced by it. Most people are pretty averse to it and it's not because, well, you know, you, you just, you just need to be more tolerant and open-minded man. No, <laughs> like that, that has that is embedded in your mind because you don't realize that this what was turned into normal. Like there's no, like, like people are like, there is a thing as normal. There is such a thing as normal. And, and most people are normal unless they're influenced. People are pretty easily influenced. A case in point, the, this whole series and the effects that it's had on everybody. And we'll, we'll get to in the last part, we'll, we'll get to how it, how it all really ties together. Cause we're just, we're just setting the stage for everything. Yeah. Like, and again, we can keep going. Like we, we talked before we we recorded and we found so much stuff and, and the amount of stuff that we'll probably leave on the cutting room floor. It's, it, it's pretty, it's pretty hefty. It, it, it really never ends, but (laughs) I think we're, we're just gonna, we're just gonna have to leave on this little, this little cliffhanger here. But, um, did you know that Papa John Phillips's website lapsed? (laughs) It's what? The website lapsed. It lapsed? Like, yeah. Hey, it's monthly whatever yeah 
Like if you if you go to your know, John Phillips is uh, if you go to his Wikipedia and you go to external links, it says um, Papa John Phillips official website. Next to it, it says website has been disabled. So if you want, you can buy the domain for papajohnphillips.com. Yeah, it says it's been disabled. Yep. So I think uh, that that's kind of interesting. Not that, you know, I'm not trying to do like conspiracy. Be- huh? Ooh. What does that mean? No, it's just, it's just funny that it's just not there anymore. But yeah, John, we, we will, we will get, get to, to John Phillips. Yes, we will get, we won't, we won't the take the break Papa that we John. took. Yes. Yeah. The, the less cool Papa John. <laughs> yeah. We will, we will get to, we will get to, uh, to John Phillips next week and, uh, another band that I really hate, but I, I oh, want to go over two, two things really quick before we go. Yeah. But one, uh, is, um, this, this just came up when I was looking at David Crosby and I saw that, uh, he appeared frequently on recordings by other artists, Joni Mitchell, Jefferson airplane, Jackson Brown, David Gilmore, and, uh, and James Taylor. Now, James Taylor, the thing that I know most about James Taylor, do you, what do you know about James Taylor? Cause there's only one right answer. Um, I don't, I don't think I know anything about James Taylor. Okay. So do you remember the episode of South park where, uh, uh, Cartman went to a fat camp. <laughs> yes, I do. And, and then he came back skinny, but it was like a, a an actor a from rehab. Kid. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um and they they said, What's a prostitute? Oh, children, y'all you ought to come up to me. So where's the clitoris ship? Why do they call it a rim job ship? What's a prostitute? Yeah. Why can't you just children do something normal and say, Ah, right, Chef, what's for lunch today? Hi, right, Chef, what's for lunch today? Chef, what's a prostitute? And then he starts singing that song. Prostitutes like any other woman, they all do something sick. Do you remember that? You don't uh, prefer to stay, you prefer to leave afterward. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. James Taylor. A prostitute is like any other woman, they all trade something for sex, but they do it well. And then, the, and then <laughs> uh, that's why I take the law for prostitute. <laughs> and then the principal walks in. He's like, oh, damn. James Taylor, what the hell are you doing seeing the children about prostitutes? That was, well, I, that was the only thing I wanted to bring up about James oh, Taylor. Okay. Just, just that one song from South Park. It just reminded <laughs> me of that. It's, it's pretty, oh, we're connecting the dots here. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we, we, how do we do a show and not mention South Park? Uh, you can't do it. Can't no, do it. no, 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 no. Well, there and, is, there is, there is one military, uh, um, place that we haven't talked about. That's seemingly in Los Angeles that maybe you haven't heard about either. Maybe I haven't. But, but uh, all right, I'll give a quick teaser then if we have time for it. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, on my research, you know, it appears that the city of Los Angeles was actually home to a very secret militarized Nazi compound <laughs> that was in operation both before and during World War II. Uh, remnants of that blacked out chapter of L.A. history can be seen to this day, though few make the trek. The purpose of the decaying compound was to ride out an 
anarchic apocalyptic war so that the chosen few could emerge as the rulers of the new world. Is this uh, a, Charles- this is a Charlie Manson thing, isn't it? It is. Okay. Yeah. I could, yeah. When you said like right <laughs> out, cause Charlie Manson, he did the race war thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So Manson and his yeah. crew spent an entire summer camped out at, uh, a home that was within two miles, uh, two mile hike of this curious place. Okay. Yes. So yeah, the Manson family. So mm-hmm. in Laurel Canyon, just, just to sum up just the, yeah. the story <laughs> so far. So we got military figures from the East coast sending their children to Los Angeles to start music, uh, ar- around a, a military ran movie st- special effects studio with, uh, th- with connections to future filmmakers, uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and, uh, and Charlie Manson and the Manson family. And the record labels were born in our nation's capital. And the, well, and the record labels that these people were signed to were born in the nation's capital. Yes. And, and and which is weird because there are plenty of LA based record labels, but again, I don't know the history of Capitol records and I don't know. Now here's the thing. Oh my God. Saying it out loud. I really feel stupid. Okay. Oh, all right. All right. Uh, so Capitol records, I wonder, uh, where was it formed with the name Capitol records? I, I wonder, huh? Capital, okay. So yeah. Cause punishment. Okay. So yeah. Okay. The, the, so because the, the building is, it's a really iconic building in Los Angeles, but I'm just, I just want to know if it's called Capitol cause it was founded in the nation's capital. You know, I I think I'll, I'll have to double check, but I'm pretty sure that it it is actually tied to Laurel Canyon. Like it, it would have, I think, like one of the architect. I, I don't know. There's there is a connection to to uh, the Laurel Canyon scene with the Capitol building. Actually, I oh no, I, I of course it is because yeah, the Cap Capitol Records building is a really iconic building in Los Angeles. Like it it has been featured in several movies where oh, yeah. LA is like a, a, like a post-apocalyptic like dystopia mm. and, it, and the building is still there. Like it, it's in that movie escape from LA and it's, it's in the movie double dragon. Like both of these are our post-apocalyptic movies that take place in Los Angeles, but th- that, that building is there cause it's so iconic. But I was thinking like it's called Capitol records. Cause if you look at the logo, it looks like it's Washington DC. Yeah, but for, right. from from what I can tell, is it looks like it was founded in Los Angeles. I can't I I can't tell. I have, I'm not gonna look too much into it, but um, that doesn't really matter. But you know, we'll we'll find out next time. But yeah, so there's no no there's no break this week. This this was the whole episode, just because. We just, we had that break last time because we needed an excuse to play that David Koresh song because it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And Finally. yeah. And, and I, I do consider this, this, you know, like Lord of the Rings, like sure. Each episode is its own, like contained story, but it, it's a, it's a s- smaller part of a larger story. So we're going to continue our, our trek in, into Mordor 
So Samwise, we we will be back next week. And uh yeah, no more Don't no more elongated break. No, I'll I'll do my best not to put it on, you know, but there's all these things telling me that, you know, Mordor is is good and Sauron, it's it's normal. You know, people just put on the ring and stop touching Gandalf's staff, darn it. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> All right. I'm just reading just reading about it. Okay. All right, folks. We will see you all next week. And uh I hope you're all strapped in because it gets more and more bizarre and it gets more and more disturbing.